the craziness going on. Uh, I do want to remind you today is what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, no, we didn't change from the series. We didn't change from the sermon. And, and here's really why. Um, I prayed about it and, and I, I wanted to do whatever it was that God wanted. Now next week, yes, we will be a little different from the series, but, but this week and the timing of what God has happening, uh, is just so perfect to something I realized. And I think scripture wants us to realize we're intended to realize. And it's this. The first time I read chapter eight, the very first thing that, that came to my mind was this. Power is a test of our character. Power is a test of our character. Now, what I mean by that is this. When we're given the power to do whatever we want, what we choose reveals who we really are. And, and, and I think that to be really, really true. And as I think about the life of Christ uh, and I think about the, the way this world is, has made things and we say things like, oh, no, Easter will be canceled. Um, and, and, and the holiday won't be the same and, and all that. And I will say, yes, you're probably right. The holiday will not be the same, but this holy week will probably be more close to the way God wants it, has wanted it than any holy week ever before because viruses, the government, time, an empty or a full church building can't change what God said holy week would be. Uh, so with that, I think back to the life of Christ and, and here's why. I don't think God wanted us to leave this chapter after revealing that that quote to me on, on power being a test of our character. Uh, scripture makes a very clear point in focusing on some of the things in the life of Christ. And one of those things that it focuses on before his, his triumphal entry into uh, town on that on that Palm Sunday was that the devil had tempted him. And, and it lists the temptations that he went through and it lists his victory over those temptations. And then he goes into this town on this donkey with, with people just cheering him on and it being this triumphant thing. And for the life of Christ, it's probably the closest time period he'll have here on earth until he comes to reign on his actual kingdom. Uh, but, but the closest in, in that time period where he had the power. He had the power that week to decide whether he was going to continue to do things God's way like we just sing about. Whether we would, he would surrender over every part. And it seems so weird to say, as you're like, hold on, he came for this purpose. But scripture makes a distinct thing in pointing out that he had to choose that way also. Now, we don't understand that, and I don't understand that. And that's okay for him to be 100% God and, and 100% man and, and all that. But when he had all the power and the ability to choose whether he was going to do what the people wanted, the way of the world, or he was going to surrender and do it the way that his father wanted. He chose to do it the way of his father. That 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 moment right there where he had the power and he had to choose who he was really going to be. And I think that's where David's at right now in chapter eight. You know, and that, that here's where I where I got that idea when I first started for the very first time in David's life. He's got some power. I mean, up until this point, he really hadn't had a lot of power. He's had a he's really had a lot of hell and turmoil, to be quite honest. On what he's been going through. But now he's finally got a little bit of power. And we say all the time that we are good. And what I realized in thinking about this with David and thinking about Christ's final week and, and some other things in, in Christ's life is that I think a lot of us are only good because we lack the power to do the evil we would do if we had the power to do it. Does that make sense? Do, do, do we really understand? Are we really going to be honest with ourselves and say, you know what? That's probably pretty true. I can't tell you I would be as good as I want to be and as I appear to be if I had the power to do more evil. Because in reality, some of the things I do to be good, I do good because I don't have any other choice. I don't have the means to do 
some of the evil that's out there. And in thinking about this week and even going back to when we were children, we remember times when our parents told us, you know, that you can't do something. And we would use this phrase, or at least I would use this phrase, maybe not everybody else. I would use this phrase in saying that, oh, when I'm older, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to be the one to do this. You just wait till I grow up and I'm going to do dot, 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 whatever that dot, dot, dot was. We would even take it further into amplifying those statements into saying things like, when I grow up, I'm going to be president. When I grow up, I'm going to rule the world. When I grow up, I'm going to be rich. When I grow up, I'm going to drive this. When I grow up, I'm going to have this. How many of those things actually came to pass when we grew up? How many of those things actually did we did we fall into? Realistically, a lot of them probably fell by the wayside. And maybe some of us will pick them up the older we get, the more mature we get, and do something valuable with them as, as we grow closer in our walk with God. But But here it is. That power to choose to do. Whatever you want, whatever you can, it reveals to ourselves, it reveals to others, and ultimately it reveals to God who we really are. David at the very beginning had very little power. He was a shepherd boy. He was not only a shepherd boy, he, he, he had a small flock of sheep in comparison to what the entire family had. So Such small in his power and his authority that when Samuel came to the house to try to pick the next king, the next leader, his family had to be reminded that he was still out there. His family had to be reminded to go get him. So while your beginning may be just as small and you may have been just as forgotten, David had little power. Now he's got great power. But before he gets it as now of great power, even look at, at more of what goes on. He gets a, a little bit of power when he begins to become Saul's right hand man. He gets a little bit of power when he begins to lead some of these armies and gets a little bit of authority. And, and then he becomes a fugitive and his official power is taken away. His wife is taken away and, and things change. And ultimately, through all these changes in David's life and in our lives, we have to choose who's ultimately going to have the authority and the power over every one of these areas. Because here we are years later. Saul is dead. David has become king. Stacey just read chapter eight and and what's going on. And David's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to bring about peace. And he's now got the power to do really whatever it is he desires to do. He's a king. And at this time, chapters eight through 11, really chapters eight through 12, We're going to get to see David at his absolute best. Eight, nine and ten. David is phenomenal in what he's doing. He's following the way of the Lord. He's giving God the credit and the the glory that he deserves from it. In chapter nine, he's got this this great pause of an exhibition of of grace and mercy, uh, which we'll get to in a couple weeks since we'll pause next week for for Resurrection Day Uh, and all this going on. But that's only eight through ten. In chapters eleven. David has his greatest stumble, his greatest low point, his his greatest low point in all of his spiritual life. He he begins to take drastic measures to do things his way, and it gets him in a heap of trouble. But before we get there, let's look at chapter 8 and see what God really wants us to get through this chapter. There's a phrase I hope you notice that's repeated throughout the chapter twice, verses 6 and verses 14, and it says this, And the Lord, and that should be all caps in your translation, So Yahweh gave victory to David, Wherever he went. Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. Now we'll get back to, to something else with that phrase here in just a little bit. But but I, I first titled this thing, and we don't have connections or, or anything being passed out right now, but but I first titled this thing David's Victories. And then I realized something. This isn't 
David's victories. First and foremost, this chapter is a record of God's victories. This is God's victories throughout this whole thing. God is the main character and the hero of all of this. It's a record of God's victories. And as we listen, and if we'll open our mind to, to, to connecting Scripture as a whole like it's supposed to be, we'll see this amazing connection way later in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul makes. And Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. He says, and the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to connect all that and think about this, like David, you've got to ask yourself an answer right now. Has God given you victory? Has God given you victory over something in your life? Has he given you victory to live in day to day? If your faith is in Christ, if you've trusted Christ as your, your one and only hope, then not only has he given you victory, he is giving you victory and he will give you victory. That's a guaranteed promise that we have. Victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the enemy. Uh, if Jesus Christ gives us victory over despair, uh, over fear, over lust, over greed, over jealousy, over unforgiveness, over purposelessness, over meaninglessness, victory over hopelessness, victory over the world, and then so much more. So much more, in fact, that a, a lot of the victory that, that, that we have, we don't even acknowledge half the time. Right now, probably one of our, at least for most of us, I don't think there's any in the generation right now living that's ever lived through a pandemic. Has your focus been on that? Or has your focus been on all the victories that have been brought? Has your focus been on, on, on these that are that are recovering and healing? Has your focus been on, man, God has now taken away all the distractions and allowed me time to focus on him? That has allowed me to keep family as one of my number one priorities, to keep him at, at, at the seat of the throne. Because if he's at the seat of the throne, everything else will fall right into its place like it's supposed to be. We'll be able to pick the right spouses. We'll be able to do the right jobs. We'll be able to be who we're supposed to be. We'll be a testimony to a world that is searching right now for answers. That should be getting plowed up and ready for seeds to be planted for a kingdom to expand here in the near future. And don't miss this. John says it, says it this way. Uh, John, first John chapter five, verse four. For everyone who's been born in God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. What's the victory? He says this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith is what brings forth the victory. Well, what is faith? Now, we've defined it so many different ways. The assurance of things unseen. Basically, here's what it is. It's a trust and obedience to God and his promises. And if we're not trusting and we're not obeying God's promises, then our faith is weak. And that's the testimony we're giving to the world outside. When we choose not to trust to do it God's way, when we choose not to obey God's way, when we choose the world's way, our way, when we would have rode in on triumphant day, Palm Sunday, and said, you know what, I've now got the authority on myself, instant failure happens. But if we'll choose to stay following God's law, God's word, the command that he set up, the way that he set it up, there'll be so much more victory. Victory in our marriages, victory over our families, victory over our children, victory over our daily choices, over, over the economy. We won't even have to worry about that kind of thing because we'll be doing things God's way. So, so ask yourself and write this down maybe. Has God given you victory? And, and if he has and you acknowledge it and maybe you get into the trap of, of just that, that, that traditional view of, of just victory being at Calvary. If victory is at Calvary, that's just the beginning for what he brings forth. Because when you recognize the victory at Calvary, you then have to recognize that he's given you victory in your homes. 
Victory over your family. Victory in the workplace. Victory on your marriage. Victory over your words. Over your finances. Over your thoughts. Over your desires. That that hill of Calvary, it flows down great victory over every area of our lives if we'll let it. And if we choose not to let it, then we're the ones that are blocking God's promises rather than succeeding with them. This chapter says two things mainly. It gives God the victory. And if we give God the victory, then God should be the one getting the glory. So, so look at this very first thing in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And, and I think just the chapter itself gives us our first lesson. One of the many ways we can glorify God in light of his victories is to do what 2 Samuel chapter 8 has done. It's a victory list. It's a victory list, man. Look at the chapter. Cliff, I'm going to be honest, brother. If, if you were still sitting over there this morning knowing how you are in that upper room uh, about war and about battle and about victory, you would have read this chapter today. This would have been your chapter because this is your kind of chapter, man. I mean, just think about what's going on in this chapter, the victory, the numbers that David takes care of, the things that he does, the countries and the places that he just takes over and what he's doing. It's a victory list. So I want to challenge you right now at home or us sitting in this room right now. Write you out a victory list. Don't don't just let it be a good principle. Write it out, man. If you want to call it a journal, if you want to call it doodling, if you want to call it notes on your phone, if you want to call it comments on I don't care what you call it, but let's get a victory list going. Let, let's write down all the victories that, that we've been through. You and I can easily do this. Not only should we know what something we should do, we should easily be able to do this. And in keeping that list, I challenge you to keep adding to it. Every day, every week, every moment, you add something to that list that, 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 that gets added to your victory list. What are you blessed with? What are you amazed to get to see that God's done for you? Look for the victories in your life. Let, let that victory list be a reminder of how faithful God is to us. That covenant-keeping God that we see very clearly in this chapter, which we'll get to in a minute. Let that list be an investigator of thankfulness and praise. Man, you think you've got nothing to be thankful for, nothing to praise for? Then just open that list and read it. And we'll see just how thankful. You get in a low moment where the enemy's attacking you? Open that list. Open that list and read, man, look at what God's really done for me. Look how blessed I really, really am. Or maybe you're on the opposite end where you'll get too high of yourself. A little bit of self-pride. Well, then this list to humble you because it'll turn your eyes to realize that it's not about me. It's about God. It's not about what I've done in life. It's not about how awesome I am. It's about how great God is and what he's done. It's about Yahweh. And when you make that list, here's what ultimately does. It lets you see who the real hero of the story is, which is none of us which is not David, which is not the people of this kingdom. It's Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Next thing we see from this. So that's kind of a broad, a broad lesson we get from the chapter. Very first thing we see in this chapter, though, at the beginning, God's victories flow directly from his promises. God's victories flow directly from his promises. We said it last week. I've said it once already today. God is a covenant keeping God. He keeps his end of it. The question is, are we going to keep our end of it? God's sovereignty we see in this chapter. Nothing can thwart, nothing can stop God's purposes. What chapter eight is? Chapter eight is a fulfillment of what was said in chapter seven. Go, go back last week and just look at, at a couple of the verses. Chapter seven, nine through 11. David and, and God kind of almost having what you can say, I guess like a conversation. He's getting the promises of God and then he speaks back and he says, God says this to David. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've cut off your enemies from before you. Now we'll make your name great, which we're going to get to see Fulfilled in verse 13 of chapter 8, by the way. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. 
Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The success and the triumph of chapter eight is a result of the promise in chapter seven. And it didn't happen by isolation. It didn't happen by chance. It happened because God promised it would happen. And things in our life will happen, not by chance, not by say, but because God promised it will happen. David is seeing the fulfillment of what God has promised, not just to him now, but this promise goes back even to Abraham 600 years ago. 600 years ago, 14 generations before David, God made this covenant promise with Abraham. Look, look back and remember some of it from Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. Later in chapter 13, 15 through, or 14 through 15, I'm sorry. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east, and west. What is he saying? Look all around you. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Later in chapter 15, 18, 18 through 21. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt, which, by the way, is where we're at right now. The Euphrates here in chapter eight of Second Samuel, the, the land of the uh, Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, the Kadamites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephorites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigerishites and the Gebusites. And who knows what all kind of sites else to go with it, right? He's making these promises. The geographical boundaries to the promised land are already in God's mind at this very moment. He's already drawn out the exact borders and boundaries that are going to happen, that they're going to have. And here we get to chapter eight, finally, second Samuel, 600 years later, verse one. And it says, and in the course of time, well, the course of time is this. It's now come to pass. This is the course of time from the promise and the covenant that he had made 600 years previously, a covenant that he had reiterated with David. And now we see it happen in the course of time. Verse one says David defeated the Philistines. He defeated the Moabites. He defeated the Arameans one after another. What's it saying is David just got in the ring and one after one continued to knock people out. David just put up his, his dukes and got ready to fight. And one after one got victory after victory after victory after victory. God gave David. We need some victories in our life. Am I right? We, I mean, we need some, especially right now. God gave David victories over the territories that really were supposed to already belong to Israel. Th these aren't distant places. This is, and I want to make sure we understand this, you know, to prove on, on where he's conquering and what he's doing. This is not David conquering out of ambition. He's not gone any further than he's supposed to have gone. He's not doing what he wants to do. This is not a personal conquest. This is a divine conquest. David is doing exactly what God wanted fulfilled and promised Abraham and David. I mean, to, to the T on where all this stuff is lining up. And David was acting not on his own impulse, but on the impulse of what God had said. Now, now ask yourself right now, because this is probably a great question for this time period right now. Do we act on God's word? Do we act on God's word? Do we act on what his word promises us or do we act on what we see around us? If we act on God's word, then we don't respond to what we see going on around us. Not in the way of fear, not in the way of despair, but in the way of trust and obedience in a way of understanding. That's the difference. And I think sometimes we let what we see affect what we have heard him say. And when we let what we see affect what we heard him say, we don't do things God's way. 
We let emotion, we let, we let fear, we let anxiety, we let the things of this world get in the way. God said, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 10 and 11, I will provide a place for Israel that they can call home and will no longer be disturbed. I will give you rest from your enemies. I mean, ju- just look at what goes on since we, we look back at the promise in Genesis with, with, with northwest, east and south. I mean, <laughs> north, south, east and west. And, and look at this, the places David took back in this chapter. In the west is the Philistines. That's verse one. In the east is the Moabites. That's verse two. Which I'll also like to add to verse two why he talks about the Moabites. A little bit of speculation, a little bit of guessing. Some people say, well, well, hold on. Wasn't David actually related to the Moabites through his grandmother? Yes. Wasn't there a chapter in first Samuel where he actually sent his family to, to stay with it? Yes. Then why is he also destroying them? Correct answer. I have no idea. What tradition tells us and what I believe could be most likely true by the evidence we read is that the Moabites didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do with David's family. They, they maybe didn't protect them. Maybe they even brought harm to them. And now David is retaliating for them not keeping their end of the deal. In all honesty, we don't know. It's a lot of speculation on and, and a lot of history. What I do like, though, is while we're at the east with the Moabites also and not knowing exactly why he chose them, in verse 2 of the Moabites, it says that, and he selected, drew a line, basically, some that were going to live, some that were going to die. And the ones that were selected to live, they got to pay tribute. God himself has now set it up where not only are, are enemies being destroyed, but now you can say that, that an income is now being brought forth to God's people. All because of the way God's lined it up. I think this is amazing on, on what God's doing. Verse 3, back to our directions. So we got west, we got east. Verse 3, in the north. That would be verse 3 with the, with the Armenians in Damascus. Verse 5, the south with the Edomites. Northeast, I, I like how it even goes there. Northeast, if you pull out a map from verse 12, the, the Ammonites. Southwest, we got the Amalekites and also in verse 12. We've got every area covered that was told to be covered. And God is acting to fulfill his will so that Israel will occupy these territories according to the promises he made Israel. Nothing can stop God's plan from being brought forth. When God says, I will, he will. When God says he's going to do something, it will come to pass no matter how long the delay and no matter how bad the situation looks. I mean, just picture Abraham at this moment since we're back on him. Abraham gets and he's led by God to this land and he's told this is going to be your land. This is going to be your place. And he sends out these spies. How surprised did Abraham have to be that the land was already occupied? He let what he saw and the spies let what they saw allow them to react instead of respond to what God had said, to what God had promised. And because of that, we know the story, how long they missed out. And maybe that's why part of God's promises, if you recall, we just read in Genesis repeatedly, he said, I will give your descendants this land. It's almost like God already knew exactly what they were going to do. I will give you a descendants of saying, it really doesn't matter who was there when you first got there. It doesn't matter if it was giants like Joshua and the, and the spies saw. Whatever the obstacles, if God says he's going to give it to us, we're going to get it. Whatever the obstacles. 600 years ago, and now it comes to pass. Will it take time? Yes, yeah, some of it takes longer than we want. When we really get all the promises and all the quote-unquote prosperity that a lot of churches try to preach on this earth, no. A lot of the promises and the prosperity that we preach, that's for God's kingdom when it comes. That's not even four time periods right now. That's for the kingdom of God when he comes and he takes his throne and his people begin to do and be who we're called to be. That's when we'll get a lot of these promises that we're called to heed, right? So that leads us to the second part then. 
if, if we look at this, this chapter, we see that, that nothing can stop God's plan. So God promises us. And then you can write a little hyphen or a comma or whatever. And the same part, we fight. God promises and we fight. This ought to be a privilege to us. That means we get to play a part in God's plan. God has chosen us, chosen to use us in this thing. And I just love the, the picture here, man. Right at the very beginning when it says David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. David attacked them. David attacked, David attacked a group. Now we're talking about the Philistines, a group that has troubled Israel for centuries, that has dominated the people of God. In the reign of David, he, he's, he, he decides to attack and take over what was supposed to have already been taken over. David didn't avoid, and here, here's a note for you guys. Please, please, please don't miss this. David didn't avoid fighting the Philistines because Israel had lost to them so many times before. How often is it that you and I choose to avoid fighting an enemy because we've lost to it before? How often is it that we give up on what God's great plan is? How Think about it in every area of our lives. If it be work, if it be finances, if it be our marriages. Because we had a fight. Because it didn't work out well the first time. Because the first kid didn't do what he was supposed to do. How often is it that we've given up on things that we haven't been called to give up on that God has told us it's time for you to fight again. It's time for you to quit surrendering. It's time for you to fight again. When David becomes king, the Phil at this moment, think about the time frame. David becomes king. At this moment, the Philistines are taking territory from God's people. They're in the process. Saul didn't do what he's supposed to do. He was too busy fighting God's own people. So, so, so there, I mean, the Philistines are literally in the process of taking territory back from God's people. Yet under David's leadership, as soon as he gets in there, we've read it for a couple of chapters now, God's people begin to take territory back from the enemy. I think it's about time we as believers start taking back what the enemy stole. I think it's about time we as believers start taking back, start getting off our seat and start getting back the stuff that God has promised us that we've let the enemy take. It's time we take back our children. It's time we take back our spouses. It's time we get back our peace. It's time we get back our joy. It's time we get back our power. It is time right now that you and I quit letting the world stop God's promises us and stop allowing the enemy to block our minds, to block the, the word of God, to clog our hearts, to clog up our minds and start realizing it's time right now. I start taking back what God has promised me that is mine. And the only way you can do that is if you live by the word of God and set it by the ways of this world. I think sometimes we fall in a trap and it's real sad that we get in the mindset that, that God's promises are just received passively. Like we get a plane ticket to jump on the plane to a first class seat. He's going to put a drink in our hand. The seat's going to kick back. We get to pull that little fancy mask over our face and go to sleep turbulence free for our heavenly destination. Well, I got news for you, whether you like it or not, and whether it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. That's not the way the Bible says it. The way scripture says it is that it's a fight. The way scripture says it is that he's looking, he's given promises us, but those promises, they come for active faith. God promises us to get past the finish line if we run. You don't just get to go to the finish line if you, if you sit at the end. You got to run. God promises us to give us a harvest, to give us a, a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of eternal life. Well, that means I got to do some planting and I got to do some watering and I got to do some tilling and I got to do some plowing. I got to do some work. God promises us to give us victory if we fight. And that's a daily fight, church. It's a daily fight because you won yesterday. Don't you think the enemy's not going to come back and try to fight you again tomorrow? Because you won tomorrow, don't think he's not going to come back. But because you lost today, don't you dare get afraid to fight him tomorrow. And if you lose tomorrow, don't you dare be afraid to fight him on Tuesday. Huh? 
You, you get up and you fight the enemy every single morning and you let him know that you're declaring you're standing on the rock about the promises of God. David received this promise in, in chapter seven that God's going to establish his kingdom, give Israel rest from his enemies on every side. And we get that whole complete circle as we just looked at with the places listed in chapter eight. And in light of that promise, what does David do? He don't do no sitting back and waiting. And don't you think God was powerful enough and David knew God was powerful enough that he could have just rained down fire and brimstone and did exactly whatever he wanted to be done. But David didn't do that. It says that David went out and fought the battles. Notice, fought the battles that needed to be fought. He didn't go out fighting enemies he wasn't supposed to fight. He didn't mess up with territories he wasn't supposed to mess up with. Some of you losing battles right now because you fight and fight you weren't supposed to be fighting. Some of you right now are living in misery because you're in an area you're not even supposed to be in. You trying to take over a territory that was never supposed to be yours, that was never promised to you, and because of that, you're losing. You're not going to win an area that he didn't promise you you would win. You're going to win where he promised you you would win, what he promised you would win, and how he promised you you would win it. David goes out and fights the battles that needed to be fought. I thought about this, and I had to, I had to clear it with Wilson because I, I like sports, but I'm not 100% on, on hockey yet, even though the boys love it, right? I, I thought about the Stanley Cup. You know, I've seen pictures of that thing before and I've seen videos and, and even once they had it down at the, at the Stingray game on, on, on display, this thing is, this thing is massive. I mean, it, it is impressive to look at regardless. But what impresses me most about the Stanley Cup is this. It's not like a Super Bowl trophy. It, it's not like winning a race. It's not like some of the awards that we get. That Stanley Cup goes and it stays for a year at the winning team's territory. And if you lose the next year, then you gotta watch your trophy get picked up toted straight up out of your territory and put back in enemy territory. And some of us right now need to get that picture in our head because we're in one of two places. Either the trophy is in our territory and we want to keep it there or the territory or the trophy's already been stripped away to another territory and it's time we fight to get it back. I don't think there's a team any morning that, is, that has had that trophy in their house, in their home, in their territory and said, I don't want to keep it. I think every single one of us said, you know what? This is all of sports most prized territory, and I want to keep it. Folks, when you get a hold of the promises of God, when we, when we fully realize some of the lyrics to the songs that we praise and worship with, and we truly understand how amazing and awesome God is, and his promises are, and his word is, and what he wants to do in our life, we want to keep those things forever. We don't want to let them go. We don't want to let the enemy take them for even one season. We want to keep them year after year after year after year after year. And we can if we'll do things God's way. Look, look, look at what goes on in this thing. Not only is God going to fulfill his promise, he's going to fulfill it through a servant. He's going to fulfill it through a servant, through David. Church, God needs servants to fulfill his promises. The question is, is it going to be us? Is it going to be us? Because if it's not going to be us, we're not going to stop God's promises. Don't, don't get confused in that in that phrase I said where God needs his servants to fulfill his promises. He wanted to fulfill it 600 years ago. But the wrong servants weren't doing what they were supposed to do, so they missed out. But they didn't stop God's promise. They just delayed it. If you and I want to be the servant that gets used to fulfill the promise, we got to do it now. Let's stop delaying God's promises. Let's stop delaying. Well, I know what I ought to be doing, but that just doesn't fit in my schedule. I just don't like the way that, that, that life would be if I had to do it that way. If you know what you ought to be doing, to not do it is direct disobedience to the word of God. 
If we know how we ought to be living, what we ought to be saying, what we ought to be doing every day, and how we ought to be treating people and not do it, that's direct disobedience to the Word of God. It's part of our stewardship. See, we we get so stuck, so 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 caught up on stewardship being money. And I'm grateful for all of you that have texted and asked because the bills ain't stopped coming despite uh you know electric bills going to come every month regardless of whether the the church doors are open or not. So I'm grateful for that. But let's just pause for a minute and be honest about some of the questions we ask when we ask that. Well, well, what about our tithe? What about the tithe of your time? What about the tithe of your talents? What about the tithe of your abilities? You know, we don't pass the offering plate because we don't worry about the finance part of it. God will take care of that. God has put a will in people, a heart in people, like some of you that have asked, like some of you that have already donated, donated and kept donations coming because that's your drive. You're not doing it because you feel like you're happy. You're doing it because you want to, and that's right. But let's remember stewardship goes way beyond the dollar sign. Stewardship goes into how we spend our time every day. You want to go back to that 10th idea? Let's just use it as a base then. Do you give God 2.4 hours every single day? And that's just a base, by the way, when you get to the 10th, but that's a whole other sermon in itself. We're not going to go there, right? But do you? Do you give God that? Are you giving God, what, what, what is that, almost 18 hours a week minimum? That's minimum, by the way. That's where the 10th starts. Huh? What, what about your talents? What about your abilities? What about loving and caring on other people? I assure you, if you can't find somebody who needs help right now, you're not looking, to be quite honest with you. Okay? This is the easiest time for believers to be and do who we're supposed to be and do. God is going to accomplish his purpose through David twice in this chapter. Verse 6, verse 14. It said that the, it said that Yahweh, Lord all caps, gave David victory wherever he went. Look at the flow of these chapters. Chapter 7 and chapter 8. God spoke, chapter 7. He revealed his will and his promise. David responds with a prayer. He acknowledges God's goodness. He expresses his faith in God's word. And it ended with an amen. To what God revealed, even though it was difficult, even though I fully believe David didn't comprehend the meaning of eternal kingdom last chapter. I, I don't think he believed it all and understood what well, maybe he believed. I'm sorry. I believe he believed, but I don't believe at all. He understood what eternal kingdom was going to be, what a reign forever and a dynasty of his family was really going to be. Yet when God spoke, God revealed his will. David responded with prayer. He acknowledged in goodness and he expressed his faith and he ended with an amen. What does that mean? It means it's in our mouth and in our mind. Victory is in your mouth and in your mind. And if you let the enemy take over your mind and take over your mouth, he's won the battle. He's won the battle. But if we'll keep our mind and our mouth speaking the things of God rather than the things of destruction and the things of this world, oh, the difference it can make. I mean, just think about it. When you speak destruction, what happens? Your whole attitude changes. You get grumpy. You get aggravated. Nobody wants to be around you. Nobody likes you no more. But yet if you speak in goodness, if you're being positive, if you're highlighting the good things, despite that, if you're remembering your praise list and your victory list uh, instead of your defeat list, man, people want to swarm to you. They, they, they want to be around you. I think some of our, our, our politicians, they mean really well when they're speaking some of the things they're speaking and people listen to it just because they want to hear good news instead of bad news. And I don't know necessarily if that's all bad or all good, but I know people flock to a mouth that speaks goodness and a mind that has goodness rather than the negative side of it, right? It's in your mouth. It's in your mind. That's where victory truly starts. And in chat, you want to take back what the enemy is taking? You, you, you want to get back what the enemy is uh, uh, taking away from you? Start speaking it. Start speaking it. Start believing it in your mind. Instead of what you just close your eyes. 
You, he gives that illustration in the New Testament. Jesus, he says, if that eye is causing you to sin, maybe you should just get rid of it. Maybe both our eyes, because we're letting what we see block so much, maybe we just need to close our eyes altogether. Put, put on a bandana and start walking through life without seeing so that we can stop being sidetracked by the disbelief and the distrust and the despair that's outside and start focusing on what our mind tells us that God's already promised. Chapter 8, David acting on what he believes. He takes arms and he fights in the land. God had prepared him for this day from the very beginning, church. Don't miss it. It's hard to look at the, a study on David and not realize and not understand that, that his past had been shaping him the entire time. And some of us right now just need to be reminded that you hadn't been with us on the series, so, so you don't know it, and you've forgotten it, and you've messed up. Don't undermine the trials of your life. God uses them to prepare you. The trials of your life are used to where you had to go through some of the stuff you went through so that you could get to where God wants to get you. You had to be a shepherd so that you could sit on the throne and you had to do all that stuff in between. Some of you even had to run for a period of time, lost, confused as a fugitive so that God could get you back the authority that was supposed to be yours. David knows. Look at verses seven through 11. Just just look at this, this section of chapter eight. David knows that it's God that gave him the throne. He knows that God's given him the victory. He acknowledges God's role over all of it. And we see that because what's he doing? Seven through 11? He dedicates everything. He dedicates everything back to God. All the articles of silver, all the articles of gold, all the articles of bronze to the Lord. All that he had gotten from all the other nations that he had conquered goes back to the Lord. The lesson here, David used these resources to invest more into God's kingdom. Some of us, some of us have some resources that God's blessed us with. And we need to start investing them back into the kingdom. God's blessed you with some things so that you can bless others. So so ask yourself, are we investing the resources that we've won back into the kingdom? Are we? Are we really? Are are we using what God's given us to use? I mean, just just a note right here. The gold and all this stuff that David's accumulating during this time, he uses for what God told him he couldn't do. Now, some of us would have been bitter. Some of us would have been grief-struggling. Some of us would, would, would have just had a bad attitude. And because God told us no in the last chapter, we would have took all that stuff and hoarded it. David, David's using all of it to build God's temple, to give to Solomon so he can build. Second, uh, First Chronicles chapter 22, by the way, you want to know, you want to know how much he, he accumulated? This is just one of them. Second Chronicles 22, we, we get this list of, of what it actually weighed and, and what he used to, to build this temple. That, that list right there, when it lists just the gold, just the gold, 7.5 million pounds of gold is what it would have weighed. Now you pause and think about that, believers. 7.5 million pounds of gold. Do you remember when they had the gold rush in San Francisco and you would see the guys with the little pie pans? Well, we probably didn't see it, but you've seen videos. But, you know, their pie pans are out there shaking for, for little nuggets of gold like that. They sell gold by the ounce. By the ounce. And people get excited when they get an ounce of it. David had accumulated 7.5 million pounds of gold and just stored it for when the time is right for Solomon to build the temple. This is no small thing that David's doing, guys. This is big stuff. This is big stuff. And you and I need to, we need maybe a separate list. So you got your victory list. Maybe your other list needs to be, what material am I using for God's kingdom? What am I doing with the material that God's blessed me with? And how am I using it for God's kingdom? All the successes, all the gains, they belong to God. So what are we doing with them? 
What are we really doing with it if we're just stewards of the things that God's blessed us with? And here's the warning maybe at this moment right here. Don't let your winnings and your stuff become idols. It had been so easy for David at this period. It's so easy for Jesus as he rode in on that donkey that day to let power go to his head. But yet he done. He done. He didn't let those things, that stuff, his winnings become an idol. Look at this next lesson. We respond by dedicating everything to God. Let's let's finish with what's being dedicated. Really, before you even get to that dedicated, something more important. You know, God looks at the heart more than he looks at stuff. He dedicates his heart to God right here in verse four. Look look at verse four and what he does. It sounds like this really gruesome thing that's going on when we talk about, you know, getting rid of horses and and only keeping some. But verse four says this. He spared enough of them for a 100 chariots. Chariot. Like if you had the chariots, you were winning the battles. Physically speaking, that David would keep such a small number out of those thousands shows remarkable self-control and trust in God. I mean, think about it. He could have kept them all. He could have set up a department of men right there to, to, to keep them all and, and do them whatever. But he refused. He, he obeyed the principle of Deuteronomy chapter 17. He refused to trust in horses as military weapons. Instead, he followed some and he wrote about it in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. That his trust was going to be in God instead of in man's things. Look at that back in verse 4. Right there's a little screen. David captured 1,700 of them, but only kept 100. Some take pride in a chariot and others in horses. But we take pride in the name of Yahweh, our God. What's your pride in? Is your pride in your stuff? Is your pride in your belongings? Is your pride in all the, the things you've accumulated in life? Or is your trust in God instead? David, David showed remarkable self-control and trust in saying, what had to go and what would stay. Verse 7. I love this one, man. We talked about just collecting that gold just now. Verse 7 gives us a little bit better picture. Though. It said that David took the shields of gold. So their shields were gold, right? That belonged to the servants of this area. Well, what, what's a shield really symbolic of? Their safety, right? Their glory, right? David takes what was supposed to be the glory of the enemy and he transforms it into a trophy of power for God. Is that not a beautiful and amazing picture? He takes what the enemy was looking at as their glory, as their safety net. And it says later on in the book that the shields of gold were set in the temple and test, and therefore they testified to God's great work. Something that the enemy intended to keep for its glory. And then we think back to this today. God loves to take people and things that are trophies for the devil and making trophies for his power and goodness. Think about all the trophies that the devil has outside. Think about all the people and the things that, that, that Satan is using as his glory sticks. God loves to take those and bring them back and rekindle them and use them. Verse 10 says that Toy sent Jerome, his son. Jerome is a, uh, is a new translation, by the way, of this guy's name. Uh, to King David to greet him and to bless him. Read on to verse 10. It says that he actually came to congratulate him. He's now got the enemy congratulating him for what's going on. Verse 13, it talks about David's reputation getting so well known among all the land, which God had promised previously. Here's what we see happening in these chapters. Neighboring nations are seeing that the hand of God is a good thing. And they're bringing honor and they're bringing gifts because of it. They understood that a strong godly leader is not just good for Israel. It's good for the whole community of nations. Church, let's be honest, whether the world outside completely agrees with everything we believe in here or not, they acknowledge that the ways of God are not necessarily evil or wrong. I mean, look at some of the laws of all the lands that we've set up. They're based off the laws of God. 
They acknowledge very clearly that God's ways are good and pleasing and great. And that's good. Because here's another lesson we get real, real briefly that maybe some of us need to grab. Not every pagan nation surrounding Israel was hostile toward Israel. Not all of them were hostile. And because of that, note this and keep this. Now, remember this. Because they weren't, David didn't treat them as if they were hostile. Those that weren't, he didn't treat that way. And and here's your big note for application today. We make a mistake if we treat every unbeliever as an openly hostile enemy of the Lord. We make a mistake if we treat every unbeliever as an openly hostile enemy of the Lord. Because chances are eventually they might be part of the family of God. Part of the kingdom of God. And if we don't treat them right at the very beginning, we may have been the one that made them hostile enemies of God. Only thing I can think of worse than not being able to join, not being able to have somebody, you know, introduce them into the kingdom of God would be being the one who pushed them to be a hostile enemy of God. And you better believe we'll be held accountable for that. Verse 11, King David dedicated all these things to the Lord. He knew that praise and glory belonged to God. What, what I see here in this chapter, and maybe a question we need to ask now, is that David could handle success and he could handle failure. Through the life of David, we see it. He can handle success and he can handle failure. Can we? Can, can you handle your time in the cave? Can you handle your, your time of victory? And yes, some of you are thinking, hold on now, you said chapter 11, he's going to be at his lowest. He is. We know it. It's with Bathsheba. He struggles with the woman and then he struggles with how to handle it. But, but the good news, you know, you know what comes after that? Repentance. So even his time of failure, he can handle. It wasn't handled immediately the right way, but it gets handled. But, but what does he do first in all this and all this time of success? He's giving God the credit. Here it is. We need to start using more of the resources we have to invest back into God's kingdom. We fall in the trap when we think that our achievements and our successes are all ours. We fall in the trap when we forget to acknowledge God's role and God's blessing in the things that we have. We fall in the trap when we don't acknowledge Psalm chapter 127, verse one, where he writes, unless Yahweh builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And what's happening here? You've got David as God's servant, doing God's work, fulfilling God's will. God grants him success and he thanks God for it. We are servants of God. The question is, are we doing his work? Are we fulfilling his will? Because whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, our reputation on this earth at this time period is God's reputation to the people right now. Now, you can be setting up God for a good reputation or a bad one. And you can say, no, nah, that's not right. God is, is, you're right. God is way better than us. You better believe it. Yahweh is so much higher than we are. But unfortunately, to enemy territory, whether they be hostile or not, they're watching us for the reputation of God. And if you and I aren't setting up a good, successful reputation of the Lord, we're setting up a bad one. That's how it works. It started with saying this, and I need to point this out because we need to make sure we get this as we get further into David's life. We started saying that nothing could stop God's purposes. We, we looked at a verse that said, and God got, brought David victory everywhere he went. Does it mean David's going to win every battle? No. We've already hinted. Chapter 11, he loses the battle of lust. He loses the battle of how to handle it with the, with the dad, with the husband. You know, so, so we've got that. He loses some battles, but here's what we need to understand. There's a difference between purpose and success. When we're looking at the world standards, the world looks at successes as objects that we win, right? Just look at Jesus real briefly. Real briefly, just as a small example. In one day, Scripture tells us that Jesus lost 5,000 of his followers. 
Now, by the world's definition of success, that's pretty bad, right? Do you think Jesus was not a success then? No, because he lost. Or yes, because he lost them because he continued to fulfill his purpose rather than worrying about worldly success. Our, 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 when I say purpose, by the way, let me make sure it's not what you think your purpose is. It's what God thinks your purpose is. What's what's your God given purpose? David's able to continue to win and be a man, be the only man recorded in scripture as, as a heart after God. Why? Because he handles things God's way and he keeps going for God's purpose rather than worldly success. And here's the final lesson. We close them. When God gives victory, you got to use your influence and your position to carry out God's principles. When God gives you victory, you've got to use your influence, your position to carry out God's principles. Have you, have you set aside your time and your talents and your treasures for God? Are you using them for his stuff? This morning, look, look at one of these last verses. We, we got the victory list, sure, but we can't miss this, this very last statement. Well, not very last, but one of the last statements. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equality to all his people. This message is central to what's going on in the book of Samuel. God wanted to install a king over his people that would reign over them the way he reigns over us, with justice and equality. And David's the one who does it. What's it really meaning as it wraps up? It means that David did what was right for his people. And right after that, look at 16 through 18, that list. He's doing what's right for his people. And then it lists all these guys and all these jobs from the places that they're going to be doing. Notice, grab this, write this down. No greater ruler succeeds by himself. All great organizations do well when they have gifted and committed team members. The body of Christ is not a dictatorship other than Christ being the head of it. Part of David's success as a ruler is found in his ability to assemble, train, and empower, and maintain a team. First Corinthians, Paul notices it. He keeps it for himself. Chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. God fulfills his promises through us. The victories belong to him. When we do his will, we should have nothing to fear because he's the one that's going to provide us the strength to get it done. I've kind of enjoyed not having live sports, and here's why. Reese tells me he hates it and there's nothing to do as far as TV and all that. We're big sports watchers. But but here's the thing. With no live sports, here's what all the channels have done. They started repleting games. Now, here's the good news if you're a sports fan. If you know the outcome of your team that you're watching the repeat of, does it not affect how you watch the game? Be honest with yourself. If I know my boys won the game, but in the middle of the game, somebody fumbles, I don't get nearly as mad as I did when I watched it live. If I know my boys winning the game and I watch somebody get a, throw an interception, I don't get nearly as mad as I did when I watched it live. Why? Because here's my mindset. That's bad. But it's okay because I know in the end we're going to win. Right? When going through trouble, knowing the final outcome makes all the difference. Am I right? Right? If we knew the final outcome, it would make a huge difference. Here's the problem, though, as believers, as we wrap this up at the end. We know that we have victory in Jesus. We know that that march on on that that Palm Sunday ended that thing. Well, they called it the victorious march. And though it may have looked like it ended without victory on the following weekend, we know it was victory. Because it was part of God's plan. The entire part was part of God's plan. 
We know we've got victory in Jesus. We know that we're victorious in the end. And we, and we say all that. And we, we wordly say all that. But here's the question. Do we live like it? Or do we walk around li- living defeated lives like we've lost everything? We, we need to not fall in the trap of being like that group that gathered on that first Palm Sunday. Because I think they forgot God's promises. They forgot who Christ was going to be. They, they forgot what was really going to happen. And we need to not only remember, we need to start living like we remember. I've asked Wilson just to play. No words, unless he so chooses to worship to the Lord on his own. But, but no words. But I asked him to come up and play as we wrap this, this ending up. Because here's what we need to remember. Why everything right now going on seems crazy, seems chaotic, seems in despair. Here's some things we should all remember that need to be added to your list that I'm hoping you're making. We need that list of victories to begin with. Let's remember that. Let's remember that God never fails. Let's remember that God keeps his word and his promises. Let's remember that we got a part to do. Let's remember to give Yahweh the credit. Let's remember to use our influences for him. Let's just remember him. And as we come back here next week and so many people continue to say, oh, it's going to be the envious church has ever been. I'm thinking next week, whether the, the seats are full or not, I'm thinking next week, the story of Christ and the story of the resurrection will get out to more people than it's ever gotten out to in our current period of churches because of technology and because of us using it the right way. And while we can say the church is empty, I'm proud, more proud to say, well, the tomb is empty too. And if the tomb is empty, and I wasn't even going to say it, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, here's what next week is. Here's what God gave me, gave it to me months ago. If we want to get what Jesus got, we got to do what Jesus did. If we want to get what Jesus got, we got to do what Jesus did. And that, that has a lot to do with what goes on in this week of his life. Let, let's come back next week and receive that promise. Let's trust in his promise. Because the tomb is empty, we can know that his promises were real. Let, let's come back with trust in him. Let's live through this period of a pandemic all around us, trusting in him. I, I'm going to pray for us, but I don't want you to rush back to your kitchen and grab you another snack. I don't want everybody here to race out the door to get a snack because they're here and they didn't get a chance to go over to the kitchen and eat while they while they watch this. I want us to remember what he's done. I want us to take a few minutes, just listen to the, to the music as it's going, to, to listen to what, what God is speaking to your heart through these verses. Let's not only remember what he's done, let's remember what it is you and I should be doing. And let's give him the glory and the credit for it. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful. God, when we open our hearts and our minds to see what it is that you promised, God, what it is that you've done, what it is that you continue to do, Lord God, despite all the stuff going on around us. God, I pray that you use this time period in our life, Lord God, to open our minds wider, broader, Lord God, to see in your word to study in scripture, God, to be in with other believers, Lord. Lord, to spend some time with you in prayer. God, help us to reprioritize our lives. To understand, to give you the credit and the glory, God. God, to be better stewards of the things you blessed us with. More than just money, Lord God, but the talents and the time that we have. God, help us to, to, to add to that list daily. So that we can daily, Lord God, have something to look back on and remember how awesome you are. And how much we need you, God. God, help us to follow through on those words that we sang here at the beginning, God. So will I. So will I, God. 
God, whether it be in victory when I have power or whether it be in despair when I'm in a cave, God, I'm going to follow your way above everything else. God, help that trust in you to increase. God, help us to look the enemy in, in, the, in the eye, Lord God, to kick open his door and to take back the things that he's taken from us. God, help us to hold forth with clenched fists to the promises you've made. God, give people an open understanding, Lord God, of the promises you made to get us through periods like this in life. That we don't have to live in despair because we can trust in you and your way. For it's in your great name. We pray this prayer. Father God, we love you. Amen.